The reading is taken from Luke chapter 15, beginning to read at verse 11. The parable of the prodigal son. And he said, There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came, and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I have never disobeyed your command. Yet you, gave me a, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But then this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, and you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, 
and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Thank you, Wendy, for reading for us. And let me add my welcome to Chalmers. I'm uh, Roger. If you don't know me, I'm one of the ministers here. And uh, you may not have seen me much in January because I had a couple of viruses, including COVID, uh, but I'm back now and very thankful for it. And to be here in person is a wonderful thing. Let me just say, if you are kind of new to Christian things, if you're just looking in, curious about what we believe, this is a great week to be here. We're glad you are here. Um, As we look at one of the most famous stories Jesus ever told, and please do keep it open on page 874 as we work our way through. But I'm going to pray for God's help as we turn to his word. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you are a compassionate Father. Thank you that you seek and save the lost. And we pray this morning you'd help us to understand what being lost looks like and what it means to turn back to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this whole chapter is about things that are lost that someone is searching for. So last week, if you weren't here, we we had um, a lost sheep being searched for by the shepherd, a lost coin being searched for by the woman who owned it, and now we've got two lost sons. Yes, two lost sons, not just the prodigal, and we'll see that later on. Now, funny enough, this week I did actually lose something. It's worth kind of getting our heads into the mindset of uh, searching high and low for something precious. I guess we've all had that experience, the wedding ring that disappears during the washing up, the phone you definitely had when you left the house, the car keys that must be somewhere. Uh, My one was a bin latch mechanism, which I appreciate may not initially sound precious, but uh, without it, the kitchen bin lid just is permanently open. And with the three-year-old son, that's just an invitation for him to kind of investigate the day's rubbish or practice apple bobbing. So we were quite keen to get it back. One day it had been there, the next day it was gone. In between, I had taken the rubbish out. So I put my head torch on. This is a true story. This week, and I did some dumpster diving in our kind of big outdoor bin, trying to find this precious item. And I did. It was deep. It was like below yogurt and bin juice. It was horrendous. (laughs) But I was genuinely so chuffed, and I wasn't thinking about the passage. I was so chuffed, I went into Jessie, my wife, and said, Jess, I found it. It's not lost. I've found it. I wanted her to rejoice with me. She she was a bit underwhelmed. Um, (laughs) Maybe that says more about me, slightly weird things about me, my level of enthusiasm at actually finding this bin match. It wasn't lost permanently. But how much more the characters will meet in Luke 15. That shepherd finding a precious animal. The woman finding a tenth of her life savings. That's what the coin was. And then today, not just an animal or a coin or a smartphone or a set of keys, but a person, an actual human being being found. A human that is deeply loved by the Father. So really, we should be thinking of the the sheer joy, the, the tears of relief when a parent frantic parent finds their child who's wandered in the supermarket or on the beach. Today's passage is about finding lost people. As we'll sing later that famous Christian hymn, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound, I once was lost, now I'm found. Although, if you're new to Christian things, at that point you might think, hang on, I can understand how a sheep or a coin or a bin latch can be lost. But what do you mean calling people lost 
We've done it a lot, actually, in this service, haven't we, in the prayers. Isn't that a bit pejorative, a bit judgmental? After all, isn't the new religion of modern Scotland, apart from the rugby, that's the other one, but I'm definitely not talking about that, isn't Scotland's new religion that we're all free to navigate our own course through life? That each person can choose their way, and no one should dare suggest that that particular way of living might not be a good path, might be a wrong turn, might even be a dead end. How dare you call someone lost? Well, Jesus Christ, the most authentic and consistently loving man to ever live, did call people lost. In fact, we'll, see, we'll hear him say in Luke 19 in a few weeks' time that his very purpose of coming to earth was to seek and save the lost. And actually, it's consistent across the Bible. Last week, uh, Jay referred to a verse from the prophet Isaiah. So 700 years before Jesus, he said this, We all, like sheep, have gone astray. We turned each one to his own way. We've all wandered from our maker, and that is to end up lost in God's word, world. So we're going to see what that actually looks like in practice. This is the longest of the lost stories in Luke 15, much longer than the others. It's long because Jesus wants us to know what does it look like to be lost and to turn back to God. It's also long because there's more than one lost person, but we'll get to that with the older brother. First off, though, let's dive into the younger brother, um, verses 11 to 19. Verse 11. There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that's coming to me. And he divided his property between them. That's how the story starts. And it's worth just observing what an outrageous thing is actually going on here. Easy to miss that. You see, the younger son wants nothing to do with his father and just wants his money. Notice that? He's not even polite enough to wait until the old man dies, wait until he inherits from the will. No, this son effectively says, I wish we could speed up that process. Give me my inheritance now so that I can get out of here Get rid of you and live my own life my way. That's actually a really good summary of what the Bible describes as sin. I'm happy to take what you'll give me, but I don't want you, God. The Father represents God in this story. And I wonder if anyone here would recognize themselves in that attitude. God, I'll take your good gifts, the life, the breath, the food, the beauty, the family, the health, the sunshine... I really don't want anything to do with you, though. Give me my portion, then I'm off to do my own thing. That is step one to being lost in God's world. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. Each one has turned to his own way. Now, amazingly, the Father is so gracious, he actually grants this request. Amazing how God will give things to human beings, even while they treat him badly. Verse 13, sure enough, the son heads off. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. So the son gets to go and do whatever he wants. And I guess at first it's pretty exhilarating. No restraints, finally. Maybe some of us had that feeling coming to university. Finally. It's entirely my call now. Do whatever I want. No parents watching. 
And so this guy lives fast and wild. He parties as much as he can. He drinks whatever he can. He sleeps with whomever he can. He spends without thoughts. Until, verse 14, the money runs out. Verse 14, when he'd spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. At this point, it turns out that the friends he'd made so quickly when the drinks were on him suddenly disappear just as quickly. He looks for work, he has to. The only thing he can find is a humiliating zero-hours contract in the pig industry. It's work that was grim, dirty, smelly, and actually ritually unclean for Jews, feeding pigs. He's starving. He's not even being given animal feed that he would love to eat to slake his hunger. It's actually a really grim picture where he ends up. It's all the promises of freedom and grasping hold of life as he throws off the shackles of his father. Well, it's actually brought him to starving, despairing, and desperately lonely pigsty. That is one of the ways you can get lost in God's world. The wild, kind of reckless, abandoned kind of way. It's the stuff God and his fun-sapping rules. I'm just going to live for me, live for now, live for doing whatever I want. I'll grab the sex and the drink and the drugs and I'll spend whatever I can. You only live once. Now, sometimes it can take decades to realize that life without God is empty. But for this guy, he hits rock bottom hard, fast. Verse 17, he comes to his senses and realizes that rejecting his father and living for himself has ended him up in a worse place than where he started. And let me just say, this would actually be the testimony of many, many people who've turned to Jesus. If we just step out of the story for a moment, there are people who were brought to the end of themselves and realize that the choices they were making are not actually making them whole or happy or even healthy, that they were emptying themselves out, that they were dehumanizing themselves, making themselves feel more and more unclean or out of control, or unwanted. It's not always as dramatic as this prodigal son, but it is sometimes. And it sometimes has the same elements. I want to tell you about five people. You won't get any names, but these are all people I've met in ministry over the years. An individual going out every weekend drinking so hard that they end up vomiting away the small hours of Saturday night. Kneeling by the toilet and thinking, what am I doing? How did I end up here? How did I get so lost? A student who started experimenting with drugs along with their mates at uni, just soft stuff initially, but finds after the initial highs, all it left him with was an ever-increasing sense of panic and anxiety and mental instability, asking himself after the first year, what am I doing? How did I end up so lost, so alone? A person who lived to shop for the next bit of clothing or gadgets, but privately was running up credit card bills that frankly terrified them. The depths kept building, and no one knew how bad it really was. What am I doing? How did I get so lost? A family man or woman who, who 
still plays the part of a parent and partner in public, but in private is wandering all over the internet looking for the next thrill. Again, feeling so lonely, so alone, so unclean. What am I doing? How did I get so lost? A young person who was promised, even as a teenager, by mates and by the media that more sex with more people is the real root of fulfillment as a person. But then discovered after each short-lived relationship or party hookup that they just felt more and more emptied out, a shell of themselves, finding themselves wondering, how did I end up here? How did I get so lost? Now, we may not have all gone down the spiral quite as deeply and wildly as the prodigal son does here. For many of us, reckless living wouldn't describe our approach to life so far. But actually, those are real examples. And the, the thing at the heart of them is that pushing God to one side and saying, I'd rather go life my way. And actually, perhaps someone here or listening online does actually recognize that as themselves. Maybe the Lord is prompting this morning someone to come to their senses and discover that lasting freedom and joy and peace does not lie in running from the Father. Well, if that is you, you might want to know what to do. (laughs) And that's what Jesus goes on to. It's a portrait of sin, putting myself first, not God, but it's also a portrait of turning, of what repentance looks like. This idea of repentance is a really big deal in the chapter. It's actually after each story. So uh, back in verse 7, when the shepherd has found his sheep, verse 7, Jesus then draws the lesson, just so I tell you, there'll be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. That's what it's about. Verse 10, after the coin's been found. Just so, I tell you, there's joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And now, with the Son, we get to see what that word actually means. What does it look like to repent from sin, from living for self, living my way? Well, the basic meaning of the word is to to turn around, to do a a mental U-turn, an about-turn in our minds that turns us back to God. And that's exactly what's going on with the younger son. Just listen to himself, um, listen to him, reason to himself in verse 17 as he acknowledges where he's at. When he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I'll say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you, and before you, sorry. I'm no longer worthy to be called, to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. It's really hard to say sorry, isn't it? Do you find that? Maybe that's just me. It's really hard to say sorry about the big things, to swallow our pride and admit, I stuffed up. I really stuffed up. Not because someone made me do it or because circumstances made it unavoidable, but because I chose it, chose to reject God's way. But the younger son is clear, that is what's happened. Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. So what does real repentance involve? If you want to become a Christian, what do you do? Well, whether with someone else, I'd love to chat with you, or on your own, speaking to God, it involves praying to God and saying, I have sinned. I've wronged you, God. 
I've lived in your world with your resources as if I wanted you dead. I'm not worthy to be called your daughter or your son. Now, for those of us who are already Christians, we should recognize ourselves in those words. Yes, we may not have gone quite down the spiral in the style of the prodigal son, but it's entirely true to say for each of us, I've sinned against you. I'm not worthy to be called your child. What did Isaiah say? We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. That's why so often we, in our services, our times together, we say sorry to God. It's such a good thing to do, to say we need your forgiveness, Father. By our own merits, we're not worthy to belong to your family. Okay, that's our first big point, and that's the biggest one by a long way, so don't worry, we'll speed up from now on. That's the younger son, a portrait, a picture of sin and what it means to turn back to God. But of course, the big question at this point is, what reception is the son going to get? And I know lots of us are familiar with this story, and so we maybe think, oh, it's obvious, of course the father's going to welcome him back. Actually, when you think about what he's done, it's not obvious at all. It's easy to underestimate the outrage of it. In any culture, it would be true, especially in this culture. Sons were supposed to honor their parents, but he wished his father dead, was dead and said so. Sons were supposed to support and encourage the family and the business. He'd drained half of his father's hard-built assets and blown them on himself. As the older brother says later, he's devoured your property with prostitutes. I don't know if you've ever had experience of a family situation where someone has deeply wronged another, where a family member has been used or betrayed by someone else in the family. It's not easy to put that kind of thing back together. You don't just move on like nothing's happened. And so if we didn't know the story, what might we expect as he turns and heads for home? What might the father say? I don't know. Sorry, son. You blew your chance. You're no longer welcome here. Or perhaps he'd say, it's going to take a long, long time to pay this off, son. Or perhaps the father wouldn't be saying anything at all because he'd be inside and send a servant to give the list of jobs until he's proved he's sorry. Well, verse 20, let's look. While he was still a long way off, His father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. It's just a moment of extraordinary grace. The fact the father spots him when he's still a long way off makes it clear that the father has been searching for him on the horizon every day since he left. Notice there's no hesitation. There's no, oh, here he comes. Okay, well, let's hear what he's got to say before I decide how I'm going to act. No. No, stay back, son, keep your distance. Not so fast, buster. No, in a moment of just extraordinary counter-expectation, counter what's fair, counter what's cultural, the father sprints towards him. Sprints. It's an amazing picture. I was trying to think, have I ever seen something like this happen? The only, the only place I've seen it is um, at school pickup. Uh, there was one day when a child spotted their dad had come to pick them up for once. Usually it was a nanny with this family. 
And there was this scream of, Daddy! And they kind of tore across the playground and then wrapped his leg in their arms. But of course, in that scenario, it's the child running. I mean, parents at the school gate aren't going to act like that. Be a little bit too keen. A little embarrassing. His father's humiliating himself culturally. He's an old man, a deeply wronged man, and he sprints. Sprints with joy to give his lost son a huge hug and kiss. That said, there is still a conversation. I want you to notice this. Notice how much of the son's pre-prepared speech he gets through. We heard the speech earlier, but just listen to what he's allowed to say. Notice the father does let him speak. So the father doesn't do a kind of, there's no need to say anything, just forget about it, let's let bygones be bygones and move on. No, actually, it's not how you become a Christian. There's real confession and acknowledgement of wrong. Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But then... No sooner has he said those words, and he's about to get to the line about, okay, can I at least come and work for you as a hired servant? And the father interrupts to treat him exactly like a son. The father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe, put it on him, put a ring on his hand, shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let's eat and celebrate. For this, I love this moment, the son has said, look, I'm not worthy to be called son. And what's one of the first things he hears? For this, my son was dead. And is alive again, was lost and is found. I'm not worthy to be called your child. Son is what I will call you. See, the gracious father is overjoyed to welcome this repentant sinner home. He's fully reinstated I hope hope the implications of this are obvious, but I'll spell them out anyway. Jesus is saying that God will always welcome the person who turns to him for forgiveness in this life. Whatever they have done, however much of a mess they've made of their life, even the person who's treated God or others shamefully. That was true, actually, of the people Jesus was telling this story to. If you just look back to verse 1, There were tax collectors and sinners drawing near to him. Those are terms for kind of notorious moral outcasts in first century society. People who'd thrown their moral compass in the bin and and, uh, were seen as exploiting others. It's hard to imagine people we think of like that now. I guess the equivalent might be drug dealers and sex offenders today. People who are beyond the pale for what they've done to others. Jesus says, you cannot be so lost that the Father's not willing to welcome you home. Notice too, the Father doesn't do the great work of saving lost people grudgingly. Perhaps some of us who are Christians may feel that about our salvation, that you know, maybe God has to grit his teeth to let us in, hold his holy nose, as it were, because he knows what a stinking mess we are deep down, even if no one else knows. I guess he has to take me because Jesus died and paid the price. But there's no reluctance here. No grudging hesitation, no unwillingness. His father saw him a long way off, felt compassion, and ran. 
Now, if Jesus was sticking to the pattern of Luke chapter 15, that would be the end of the story. There are three stories. Each time, something's lost, someone finds it, and then there's a party. And uh, the shepherd says, come and rejoice with me. The, the woman with the coin says, come and rejoice with me. And now the father has said, come and rejoice with me. Let's have a celebration. Except this final story does have a sting in the tail. And actually, there's another group listening. Remember that from last week, if you were here, verse 2. As well as these notorious sinners, there are also Pharisees and scribes alongside Jesus. They are grumbling. They're the morally upstanding uh, religious elite. They're grumbling. Grumbling at the unholy company that Jesus was keeping. And so Jesus tells about the older brother, the second lost son in the story, though lost in a very different way. Let's just read verse 25. His older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called to one of the servants and said, what do these things mean? And he said to him, your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. It does stick out like a sore thumb in the chapter. Three times we've heard, verse 6, rejoice with me to the neighbors. Verse 9, rejoice with me to the friends and neighbors. Verse 23, the father said, bring the fattened calf, kill it, let us eat and celebrate. But the older brother's in no no mood to rejoice. He is outside the party, out of step with his father. He's not joining the family joy. And so it turns out there's another way to be lost. Not just running off to do things my way, but the way of graceless grumbling, the way of self-righteousness, the way of resenting God's grace to sinners. To try and get our heads around it, let's just look at what he says in verse 29. His father, ever gracious, comes out and entreats him to come back. He answered his father, look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. Now, in one sense, we might have some sympathy with the older brother. After all, the younger brother has deeply wronged his father. Perhaps he wants some justice for his dad. Except that's not what his explanation focuses on. Did you notice? No. Look, these many years I have served you. I never disobeyed a command. Never gave me a young goat. This older son characterizes his time at home with his dad like it was a form of slavery. Ironically, he speaks like a hired worker who's just putting in the hours to deserve better pay. The real injustice he feels and is concerned about is that he deserves more than his brother. He resents more being spent on his brother because he doesn't deserve it like I do. And so he begins to characterize his generous father as a miser, never gave me a young goat. He even seems to think that his younger brother might have been having a better time off gallivanting with prostitutes than being stuck at home slaving away with dad. Sometimes people think God owes them. 
At which point we might expect the father to take offense again. It's another outrageous, offensive um, treatment by a son. But again, he's gracious. Verse 31, he said to him, son, you're always with me and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad because your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Father's, Father's explanation to the son points out three things just very quickly. Firstly, son, it's better to be with me rather than lost and away. Come on, this is a loving family. You're always with me. It's not hired slavery. Second, far from keeping things from the older son, the reality was that everything remaining belonged to him. All that is mine is yours. Maybe that was part of the problem, though. Maybe the older brother didn't want any of his inheritance spent on this loser. Of course, the third thing the father points out is that this should be a moment of great joy. It should be a moment of great news. The one who's lost is now wonderfully found. The point is, if I was happy when I found my bin latch, finally not lost, the shepherd was happy when he found his sheep, the woman was happy when she found a tenth of her life savings, can't you see what's happening here, son? A precious human being who was as good as dead, gone has been found safe, sound, home. How can you not rejoice at that? I was thinking, how could the Pharisees not rejoice at the company that Jesus was keeping? How could they not rejoice that he was surrounded by people whose lives was a mess? Presumably because they thought they deserved a place at the table with Jesus but not these others, not the riffraff. Those others have made their life choices, bad choices, lived selfishly. But we, I mean, what about our hard service? We've been saying no to immorality. We've been speaking to people about God. Surely that counts for something, Jesus. How can it be fair that someone could live their whole life running from God and then right at the last minute say sorry and be welcomed back? The grumbling of the self-righteous. Now, we don't actually know how the story ends. Jesus leaves it on a cliffhanger. We don't know if the, the brother repented, turned, and went back in with the father, or whether he continued to resent and be lost. We're not told because Jesus is deliberately challenging the Pharisees to say, so then, what are you going to do? Grumble or rejoice? It's a straight choice, actually. <laughs> you join heaven in rejoicing as Jesus seeks and saves the lost, or grumble how much the whole thing costs. And actually, I wonder if that is a lesson those of us who are Christians need to take on board in our hearts. We'll see more of this next week when we get the parable of the shrewd manager. But if you look at chapter 16, the first verse, the disciples are also listening to this. We're listening into these stories. And Jesus, again, as he has so many times in this series on Luke, he's again showing the heart of his work is to seek and save lost people. He is about calling sinful people to turn around and get forgiveness for eternity. That's what he rejoices to be involved in. It's what God the Father and God the Spirit rejoice to be involved in. And it's what his people should rejoice in too. At which point we might be thinking, well, hang on. I mean, who wouldn't rejoice? If you're a Christian, who wouldn't rejoice at hearing someone's become a Christian? Surely it's a no-brainer. 
Who would grumble at that? But just for the last couple of minutes, let me just say, I think it's easier to grumble than we might think about this. Let's just think about it in the story. The Pharisees were grumbling at the time and the energy Jesus was putting into hanging out with sinners so he could share the gospel with them. Surprisingly easy, actually, in a church family to resent the effort, the resources, the energy that goes into trying to get the good news out to as many people as possible. It'd be much easier to just hunker down as a church, much more comfortable, just to run our services and have a good time ourselves and not really think about sharing the good news beyond these four walls. To not think, oh, how are we going to use Easter for the gospel? Do not think as we go back to that refurbished building, how do we maximize people hearing about Jesus through these four walls? Be easy to grumble that a lot of airtime goes to talking about sharing the news of Jesus or, or time and finances. Or the elder brother, what so annoyed him? Well, it was actually when the person came in and family resources were being spent on them. You notice that? The reality is, if the Lord brings in people to church from a whole range of different backgrounds, including messy backgrounds, sometimes that will be disruptive to the family. Maybe in big ways, maybe in small ways. Maybe our ethnicity might not become the major one. Maybe our age group might not be the majority one. Maybe the musical style or preference wouldn't fit kind of the one we like might not feature quite as much or the preferred length of sermon or format of service or timing of service or number of services on a Sunday or what we do midweek, it might get changed to allow more people to hear the gospel, to make it as easy as possible to welcome in people from all sorts of backgrounds to hear the news of Jesus. That's uncomfortable. And then it can lead to grumbling Likewise, so much of our resources as a church family go elsewhere. Gospel workers around the world in different countries. People we train up and then send out. Now, we'll think much more about that next week. But I think that is the choice we have before us. Will we grumble as God lavishly seeks and saves the lost? Or will we gladly get on board, rejoice in that work? But just as we close, I do want to sound the final note. Um, for those of us who are Christians, um, I just want to ask, when we do talk about sharing the good news of Jesus, evangelism, speaking of Jesus to people who don't know him, I just want to want, ask, kind of what emotions are normally going on in your heart? Is anything like me? A mixture of feeling quite scared? What will people think if I talk about Jesus? Feeling a bit guilty? Oh, I probably ought to do that more. Feeling duty-bound? I know the Bible says that, so I must get on with it. But actually, the dominant note of this chapter, all about finding lost people, the dominant note is joy. Jesus had a tough life, that's an understatement, but it was his joy to see people saved. It is the joy of the Father, the joy of heaven, and I pray the joy of this church family, personally and, and together, a joy to see the Lord save people. It's not to say it's not tough. Earlier in Luke, Jesus made it clear it will be tough. There's opposition. We are scared often. But actually to see even one person turn to find forgiveness, to find the open arms of the Father, 
There's no joy like it. And wonderfully, we've seen that in this church family even in the last weeks and across the last years that I've been here. And it, it, it's a joy like no other. Let's pray. Our Father, we pray that if anyone is listening to this who is lost, wildly lost, or proudly lost, please would you help them to know it? And please would you help them to know that your arms are wide open? And Father, for those of us who've been found by you, by your grace, we pray we'd never resent extending that grace. Please help us to be individuals and a church family who genuinely rejoice and celebrate your wonderful mission to seek and save. Pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.